fall when it comes to the idea of being rich and famous? You mean, am, am I in favor of it? Yeah, or... are you pro or are you against? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, sure, I give a thumbs up to being rich and famous. Welcome and thank you for listening to Almost Almost Famous, the podcast where actors, writers, comedians talk about the ups and downs, ebbs and flows of working towards making it in this crazy biz and how they're almost almost famous. I'm your host, Daniel Acker. Today's guest has written and directed two feature films, Humboldt County and Growing Up in Other Lies, and has starred in Masters of Sex, Transparent, On Becoming a God in Central Florida, Fresh Off the Boat, and more. It's none other than Danny Jacobs. Acker, your voice when you do the intro, is you, you, it's slightly lower than your normal conversational tone. Yeah, it might be my, like, what I think is like a calming intro voice. <laughs> It is. It's calming, but it's like it's like God. It's like two notes lower. It's just one or two notes lower. It's 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 barely discernible, but it's fascinating. I mean, you can just tell from the intro alone that Danny is a talented, accomplished actor and writer. Oh, so true and humble. <laughs> <laughs> what we love about him. Do you find you gravitate more towards acting than writing, or vice versa, or where do you kind of fall between the two? It's, a, it's using a different part of my brain, a different part of my personality. Like, I, I, I think um, the actor part of me is um, the child. <laughs> the, uh, the writer is the neurotic and the director is the daddy. Like, it's just it, like, they really do feel like, I mean, and they, there's overlap between those. But I, I don't. I honestly, people have asked me that before, and I, I, I really um, love and hate them all. What I, what I will say is that being an actor, I find to be less stressful, especially when I'm working. It's just like you just show up, you do your job, you shut up, and you go home. <laughs> and nobody asks you a million questions, and you, the weight of the world is not on your shoulder, just your little sliver of whatever it is you're doing. So that's nice. Um, but if I was just doing that, I, it wouldn't be um, satisfying. Mm. Do you think some of the, like you said, the neurotic part for the writing, is that like, is it more of a neurotic, like, oh gosh, like I haven't written in a while or like a neurotic, like I have to write, like a, like a, a pull to do it? Yeah, it's the, it's the latter. Like it's a, it's sort of a compulsion. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's just like, I'm, we're, we're all careening through this bizarre life and I need some way to distill it into to, to morsels that I can understand. Uh, otherwise, it's like, what am I doing here? I'm just sort of like, I'm just sort of this like blob that's just sort of like a, like a toddler that's just running into walls otherwise, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, so it sounds like writing for you and probably even directing gives you a sense of agency, even if it's false. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Like, I, I mean, I have a, I have, you know, there's a part of me that likes to be in control and uh, doesn't like to give it up. I mean, ironically, I, I say that, but I write and direct almost exclusively with my best friend. So I don't clearly want total control because <laughs> if so, I would have, you know, jumped ship on that relationship many a year ago. So I don't know, man. It's a contradiction. I realize like I both want control and uh, at, at the same time, I want somebody else to blame, blame it on if things go badly. <laughs> it's nice to have that scapegoat right next to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure your writing and directing partner has the same thought for you. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I hope so. Do you guys, or do you have a process for when you're running and possibly acting? Like, are there steps you take? Are there things you always do? Well, for writing, it's evolved and it changes for each project. But we typically, uh, his name's Darren. Uh, <laughs> he's been my best friend since we, we were six years old. And we typically spend a lot of time at the ideation phase, like when we're kind of figuring out what we want to write. And then when we are outlining, we are together a lot for that part of the process. And then once we kind of have an outline that we feel good about and we start the actual writing, we don't write in the same room. I find that to be really hard, actually. So what we'll do is not like this, this process has evolved over the years. But what we do now is like once we have an outline, one person will be like, quote unquote, leading and like, starting at the beginning of the script. And then once they get to like a chunk through a chunk, like page 10, 15, they'll send that to the other person and they'll kind of be following along behind and revising as the person in front is sort of moving through the the script. And then once we sort of get through the script, we sit down and we read it out loud. We're back in the same room and we read it out loud together before we turn it in. Mm. As an actor, like, I don't know, my process is very instinctual and, and dependent on if I'm playing a real person or if I'm creating a character, then it'll be different. The thing that I'm in now is something based on a, on a real person. And so I reached out to that person and had a bunch of conversations with him to try to get a sense of his like vibe and cadence and energy. But I certainly won't do that on any, every project. It just depends. Mm-hmm. Now you said you knew Darren since you were six. Where did you guys grow up? We grew up in the hard scrabble uh, Jewish suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. Daniel oh, Acker. all right. Um, yep, I, I'm sure that you've heard of, well, you've probably heard of East St. Louis, which has uh, one of the highest murder rates in the country. This was not that. This was the western suburbs of St. Louis, where many Jews kind of banded together mm-hmm. amongst a, a, a sea of Catholics. Now, with all the you know, different things you've worked on. Done. Are there moments in your career where you feel like, oh, I think I've like made it or you have that like benchmark for yourself? Yeah, th- there have been those moments. Every one of those moments has turned out to be a bold-faced lie. It turns out <laughs> that none of those moments were actually made it. But I will say, I will say that they, uh, they were all moments of kind of a sense of accomplishment. So in that sense, yes. One was when we premiered our first movie, uh, which is called Humboldt County. We premiered it at South by Southwest. And there was a lot of buzz around the film. And by the second screening, there was there was just a lot of energy uh, about the film. And when we showed up to the theater for the, the afternoon screening, there was like a line around the block. And it uh, sold out really quickly. But there was so many extra people that the movie theater, which was like a multiplex also playing like, you know, current films, we our sales rep, negotiated with the movie theater owner to shut down uh, one of their other movies and play our movie in two theaters. But we, was a, it, we shot it on 35 millimeter. And so we only had one print. And so literally, like they brought us into the projection booth and they had like jerry-rigged this Rube Goldberg device to like send the print through one projector and then up to the ceiling and around the, the, the room in directly into the second projector to play it at about 30 seconds later for the second theater. And there was one moment about 10 minutes into the film that always got a laugh. It was pretty consistent. And so Darren and I like watched that with the full audience in one theater and then ran across to the other theater 
to watch that same moment play in exactly the same way 30 seconds later. And that was like a moment when I was like, oh, this is, I have, this, I have to remember this. This is um, just, just fantastic. How cool is that? That's so fantastic yeah. that the theater was that accommodating. It was amazing. Figured it out. And also like, what a nice moment to be like, oh, this really does work. Yeah. You're seeing it in real time. When did you kind of start to realize you have a more natural bent for comedy? Or have you realized like you like to do drama and comedy? Well, it's funny. Like, I, I feel like I have a natural, my, my, my like most natural tone is like in, in this kind of a grounded comedic place. But my, my career as an actor is sort of all over the place. Like I have just as much drama that I've done than comedy. So I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> like, I, I mean, like, I feel like I, I, I fit in, in, a, in a certain uh, mold, but uh, the industry perhaps sees me differently. I, I don't know. Was that your question? Your question was that? No, not that. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I was just saying, like, if there's one maybe you prefer over the other. Oh, do you yeah. Have- I definitely mm-hmm. prefer, as an actor, I definitely prefer doing comedy. I feel really at home in it and and natural doing it that that is my i mean but but a grounded comedy like i i never i haven't yet booked one of those big kind of nickelodeon shows you know uh i'd like to i've gone out for a bunch of them but i i do find it a little difficult to kind of like get that tone right for me my natural place is 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 a little more muted yeah the Loading auditions tend to be like, your character is always on the verge of a heart attack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like anytime I read for it, it's just like, I'm always like, I'm sure we're similar roles where it's like, you're the adult who has to keep these wacky kids oh, yeah. under control. Yep. It's always like, like, you're always constantly like losing your mind in the right. most like comedic way. Sure. Which ironically is how I live my life, but, but, but apparently not for... But like screen. you said, acting is, it's a break from that. It's a way of escape. You don't yeah. want to just keep doing your same shtick. You have to do around the house. No, exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Whenever I have to audition for that stuff, I always just think like, okay, the energy is you are stepping on every banana peel, but not falling. That's a very good way to put it. I, I think you can hit upon being a great, like straight man. Like mm, you mm-hmm. have a very good sense of timing, a good sense of, of story and scene. And like, almost like I would say a Bateman Arrested Development type, like still very funny. Yeah. But you're surrounded by the chaos yeah. and you're like a calming yeah, central I, force. I think that's right. I, um, I, I think that plus like an occasional, like one thing I really do enjoy doing comedically is losing it also. Like, but I think that that fits with that persona that you're saying, like that the straight man that finally breaks because of the too much chaos around him is something that I feel very at home in, in, a, in that kind of moment. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, I think that's true. Well, it's an earned breakdown. Yeah. One of my, if not my favorite comedic actor of all time is Gene Wilder. And he, he does that. He did that kind of like, I think almost better than anybody when he would disassemble, it would be so believable there is a heartbreaking even quality to his kind of breakdowns that was also hilarious, but it was hilarious because you believed that he was really going through that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, Gene Wilder was like bar none, one of the best 
like playing characters that were over the top with such reality. Yeah. Like Willy Wonka shouldn't be a thing, and suddenly you see it done, and you go, "That's Willy yeah, Wonka." I know. Oh, yeah, he, so he and um, and Peter Sellers are are like my two kind of like favorite comedic performers, I think, of all time. Now, for these two people to become kind of like heroes of yours, I have to imagine your parents introduce you to them, or how did no. you get introduced to these two? Actors? Uh, no, not not oh, at okay. all. <laughs> my my parents, my <laughs> your parents never let you watch movies. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I I didn't know what a <laughs> television was. Um, my n- neither of my parents were that really into media of any kind. Um, I mean, my dad would listen to like classical music uh, occasionally, but wouldn't ever talk about any shows or I mean go to movies with them but here wait here's just, just to give you a sense of how of what I mean like so my dad was always late my dad was was late everywhere right partly because like he would go places and have like five errands to run on the way he would like plan out his route so he'd be like I gotta stop at the P.O. box and I gotta and so we would go to movies and we inevitably would be late I remember going to see in the theater with my dad Ferris Bueller's Day Off and we got we would get there like 15 minutes late. So the movie is like 15 minutes started already, right? And what we would do is we would go and we would uh like right now if that happened, I would be like I'm not I'm not going to see that movie. I wouldn't even go if I missed the first 10 seconds, I wouldn't walk into a movie. But my dad was like no, we're going to go in and we'd watch the movie starting at the 15 minute mark and then at the end of the movie we would sit in the theater for about 30 minutes while they cleaned until the next screening started and we would watch the first 15 minutes and then we would leave and go home. So, <laughs> so every movie's a mystery. Yeah, yeah. Every movie is like, how did he get it? How was he able to skip school that day? <laughs> yeah, right, right. I, I saw the whole day off. I just don't know. But you know, it, it's interesting. And I'd, I'd never thought about it before you just said that, but like, I do wonder if some of my real deep passion and interest in story and story structure maybe is partly came from an experiences like that where I would, I would be able to literally then like, oh, oh, this is how they set all of that up. And I'd see it as the separate chunk afterwards. And I do wonder now that I'm thinking about it, if that was like part of what ended up, you know, kind of sparking my, my passion for that stuff. That's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if, if consciously or unconsciously you're seeing these movies without like the first 10, 15 minutes and your brain is naturally doing what it would do, which is yeah. pattern recognition and putting together like what must have happened before. And then 30 minutes later, you got to verify how right totally. or wrong you were. And so when you were writing a story, you have like a more of a sense of like, these things need to happen for the rest yeah. of it to Yeah, to but work. to answer your question, like my parents didn't introduce that stuff to me basically like i developed my particular sensibilities from a movie and tv perspective alongside darren my writing and directing partner like basically it was to us together we started getting into like mel brooks when we were younger and monty python and starting to watch like you know the original producers and dr strangelove and the party and so we, we we kind of when we were growing up in junior high and high school um, started to kind of discover that stuff on our own together. That's sort of where, where and how it happened. That's so great. And now that you got, you have someone who speaks your same kind of comedy language and same type of knowledge yeah. like that, the history you guys have must be a real nice shorthand. I mean, I, I sort of, sometimes I take it for granted because it's just been my whole life. Like, but you know, one thing I, I always tell people who ask me like, what is the, the key to having a good long-term creative partnership? Like the one that Darren and I have is that it must mirror 
uh, a romantic relationship in that both sides must feel at all times like they are the lucky ones to be in the partnership. And if that is ever not the case, then it's doomed to fail. If at any point one, some person is like, ah, oh, man, I'm really, I'm really doing the heavy lifting here. Like, ah, oh, like I'm a little better than he is or she or whatever. It's just going to end up falling apart. And I think Darren and I both feel that way about each other. And I think that's why it's been able to work. And like a romantic relationship, your guy's sex is incredible. Uh, it's amazing. It's like so giving yeah. and, and, and sensitive. Now, have you given yourself a definition of success? I think a definition of success that I would uh, could wrap my brain around, which I have not gotten to, is just a um, a sense of calm that everything is going to work out. <laughs> uh, and then, and as I say that out loud, first of all, I recognize how Jewish I sound, um, but also I think that like that is an internal metric right? Like that is only determined by my ability to be calm about how things are going to work out or not work out, not the reality, the objective reality of whether things are going to work out or not work out, if that makes sense. So I'm, what I'm trying to say is that the power is within me and I have yet to harness it um, mm-hmm. because I'm always like, I just always feel like I'm just hustling for the next thing. You know what I mean? And I, I assume at some point that will end, but but not unless I make it end from a psychological perspective. Like I know, I know objectively that like, oh, that is a way of approaching things that like, if you let it, no matter how successful you are, you will continue to be like, oh, I've got to hustle for the next thing. Whereas somebody with one co-star credit could decide, oh, I'm just going to assume and be comfortable and calm uh, that, that, that everything is going to work out because it's, so much of it is out of my control. And that, that's the healthy way to do it. And that is not the way that I do it. Yeah. I feel like I can also see the danger, the very, the very Jewishness would be like to have that sense of calm, but then another part of you would be like, but if I'm that calm, then I'll never strive for anything. Sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. a little bit of like, but part of, part of the neuroses and the hustle. Part of is, my success. Yeah. Is that I keep going for it. I feel like you'll, you'll hit it many, many, many years from now on your deathbed. You'll be like, ha, ah, I don't have to work. Yeah. And then that'll be, be like, I got it. Yeah. Yep. Where do you fall when it comes to the idea of being rich and famous? You mean, am, am I in favor of it? Yeah. Or... Are you pro or are you against? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, sure. I give a thumbs up to being rich and famous. If your question is like, do I? Do you have aspirations or would that, is that a focus, a drive? Is any of oh. that? Um, I would say not, not to be famous, except to the extent of what that affords me creatively. Like that, that's kind of all that I care about is, does it make it easier for me to make the things and be involved in the projects that I want to be in? So, so as an ancillary benefit, yes. And if that's required to get those ancillary benefits, then absolutely. On the, on the money side, like I I would love as much money as I can, as I can get. (laughs) I am like it is not my desire to be filthy rich. I, I would like to be um, have enough money where again there's a there's a sense of calm and uh, I feel a certain comfortability to um, where I am in in my life and uh, being able to support my family and make sure that my kids are taken care of and all that stuff. I don't I don't need anything need anything beyond that. But I would absolutely I wouldn't I wouldn't turn down a sack of cash. A sack of cash is being delivered to your door as we oh speak. how delightful. So essentially it's kind of falls in with your, the striving goal of, of success for you, where it's like, if the amount of money and the amount of fame 
can also help kind of push that internal sense of, of calm. Yeah. All the better. Yeah. But anything beyond it's sort of like, uh, you know, like, I mean, I'll take, I will take mm-hmm. it, but it's cherry on top. Right. Do you feel like you've gotten some bad advice in your career? I mean, yeah, sure. I've gotten, I, I, people have given me bad advice, but I, I kind of like for better or for worse, my entire career, like have, I very much listened to my own kind of internal instincts. Um, So the worst advice that I've gotten, I've sort of given myself, you know, like as an example, like improv is one of the most important things in my life. I was very lucky to have a training in it when I was in college that was really unique. And it made me into a little bit of an improv snob when I got to LA that I think held me back uh, for a while uh, on just on that side of things, just on the improv side of things and sort of like getting into that world in LA because I thought I was erroneously, I thought I was, I, I was better than that. What was the university you went to? And what was the specific about this improv that made you? Be so I went to Stanford and Stanford that has a, an improv program within the drama department that is connected to a, a, a theater company in San Francisco called Bay Area Theater Sports, BATS. And the, the professor, the drama professor that taught improvisation and was the coach of the improv scene was a woman named Patricia Ryan. The, the philosophy was connected to Keith Johnstone and his, um, you know, he invented theater sports. Uh, he wrote a book called Impro and another book called Impro for the Storytellers. And it's very much approaching uh, improvisation from a narrative perspective, all about storytelling. It's not about, the, the goal is not about being funny or... Uh, it's about moving people, actually, and and creating emotion. And, and um, it treats improv with uh, this kind of respect uh, that I really loved. And so so it's re- it was a really unique kind of way to be introduced to the art form there. And then in L.A., I mean, with the exception of um, there is a, a, a theater company um, down here that does that kind of work. Uh, but it's a different kind of beast um, in, in L.A., the improv um community and it has value it has a lot of value and i've come to see that but at the time when i was like you know an asshole arrogant 21 year old i was like no 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 there's only one way to do it and this is the way and i think that was not a great way to uh to approach it you know what i mean i i I failed actually at at one of the basic tenets of the kind of improv that keith johnstone espouses which is to have a beginner's mind even when you're an expert to be able to approach everything you do from like the perspective of like, I have never done this before, even if you've been doing it for a decade and there is something that I can gain from it. And uh, I think that is such a valuable way to approach everything in life. And I couldn't see that then. I do find it so fascinating because anyone who's done improv to the level that we have and the length we have, you really do come across tribes and schools of thought for a, art form that is make ups It's like truly, in a way, I feel like in the comedy circle, kind of look down upon, yeah. like people are like, oh, improv. It's easy to like, you know, be like, oh, whatever. But then you go, no, like they're like diehard fans of like, this yeah. is how you do improv. Yeah. And you know what? It's like the reality is like, everybody's right. Uh, it is it is all mm-hmm. of those things. And, and it can be all of those things. And it can be different things for different people. For me, 
it is one of the most sacred kind of this. I, I know how I sound, by the way. I know that I'm talking about improvisation, but it is one of the most sacred things that one can do in, in, in that I feel like I can do in my life. Um, it has changed the way that I approach every day of my life. I think it is a philosophy about being positive and supporting each other and saying yes and being open that I think is really valuable for human beings, no matter what profession or thing that you're choosing to spend your day doing. So for me, like I get that people kind of look down on it. I, for me, it's like the greatest thing that anybody could ever do. I, I agree. I, improv is on my short list of things I think everyone should experience once. Yeah, for sure. I think everyone should, even if they take a three hour class once and then do like a 10 yeah. minute scene, just to be like, oh, it provides you with such a maybe unearned bizarre confidence yeah. and positivity going through your day where you're like, oh, I just did something that a bunch of people are afraid to do and would never be able to do. And you realize I did it and survived. Right. And in a lot of ways, like you hit a point where you're like thriving at it. Yeah, improv, I agree. As someone who's done sketch improv and stand up, improv is at my top, partly because it's, to me, little prep work. <laughs> you just can show up and start yeah. doing it. But the other side of it is like, it's the only one that allows for the ability to surprise the performer yeah. in the show. Like, you know when a, a joke should hit in sketch, you know when your standup should hit. You Same with like when you saw your feature and knew the joke was going to hit. But in improv, like you're doing it. And I've had so many moments where like I'm in the scene, but I'm also the audience. And you get that feeling of like, I just like made myself laugh internally. Like I just totally. had these things. And it's, it's, I describe it as it's like magic without having to be a magician. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that is a hundred percent right. And like, I mean, just God, there's so many things about it. One, one of the things that I noticed from learning it in college is that, and, and learning, learning how to improvise with a bunch of like, Stanford kids who were who who grew up very um, su succeeding in the system of education, where like they get they do something, they get a grade for it. It's about result, and it's about it's about yeah, it's about result. And having to kind of like th with that particular group, seeing them and me kind of having to kind of unlearn all of that that you can't focus it on result. That you, it's not about pleasing your teacher, right? Or, or the audience, right? It is about being just open and in the moment. I just think, I mean, I've taught improv to like women in prison. I've taught improv to like troubled teens. I've taught it to, to a, a, a whole bunch of different groups. And I just feel like it is like, we'd have less wars. We would be less politically divided if we all just had to do a, a sound ball every, uh, every once in a while. A global, a nation to nation zip zap zap. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. I'm with you. I feel like there's something very community building and it's hard to perform on stage with enemies. Like yeah. even if you're performing people you don't like as much, as soon as you're kind of on stage, you just have to be like, nah, it's whatever. We don't have to hang out outside of this, but when we're in scenes or we're doing things, we have to connect. We have to find exactly what's going on. We have to like discover it together because it's a team sport. But it's also interesting to me that like sometimes you can't hide it. Like that, like with improv, it's all so instinctual 
that you know it's like it's like things things bubble up that are about how people feel about one another in scenes i remember you know i I was in a group years and years ago with two people that hated each other and in their scenes one of them would inevitably kill the other on stage and it was just like they that was just happening and they couldn't stop it it was because it was just their their subconscious kind of feelings you know and and so i i just love that too that like you can't in a way like you there's a there's it's hard to fake it uh in terms of what's happening with you it's so much so connected mm-hmm. to your own energy that um no amount of covering it up will will always um be successful mm-hmm. well now speaking of you know performing and doing stuff with people who who might not like you it's time we bring out the famed insult comic Raz Clifford. Fantastic. Yeah, he likes to come out, as you know, and take the guests down. Come on out, Raz. Oh, here we go, people. Danny Jacobs, a guest that really exemplifies the name of this podcast. If the podcast was called A Talk with the Dumbest Motherfucker on the Planet. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Perhaps, Danny, we should change the name. I don't know. Now, now, according to my notes, I don't know if this is correct. Are you are you half Jewish? I mean, I, I, I have you seen my uh, my profile? Okay, few. I I gotta change these notes. I was like, something's wrong. I've seen your face. I've heard your voice. I was like, okay, I'll put it in the database. <laughs> oh, so Danny, this can't be true. You've been paid to act and write things. Is that correct? That, that's correct. Yeah. Was this some sort of like? science experiment with people in lab coats monitoring no no it's- oh god the business has gone to hell they paid you oh my god okay folks danny is one of those actors that when you see perform you're on the edge of your seat because you're trying to get out of there as fast as possible boom hit him with a quick res bang zoom all right danny if you ever see me just walk the other way because i will start punching all right bye raz Wait, wait, hey, Rat, no, no, I, I'm sorry. I know I'm supposed to laugh and, uh, and just... Oh, okay, sorry, but, Raz, but that's almost out the door. Yeah, but, but that's, that is uncool. What is it? I mean, that's it, uncool. Oh, it's really, it's a, I find it here to be go. totally, like, you know what? Like, fuck you, Raz. Like, it's, mm. like, I don't know what you're trying to cover up in your own life, what kind of hole you're trying to fill, but it is not, you're, to, to tear somebody down like that, and I know that that's not the point of this podcast. I know it's supposed to be really mm-hmm. fun, but it, it's just not a nice, it's just not nice. Okay, Daniel, this might be my last show. What the hell is this? Good, good. It this should be, Raz, is- you son of a bitch. Okay. Go to hell, Raz. One second. I'll see you there, Danny. Danny, when, when you're like outside and you see like a line of ants kind of marching, doing their thing, do you get down to the ground and start cussing them out and, Telling them to fuck off. Hey, listen. No. Listen, Raz. That's why I don't care what you have to say. Raz, you're not mad at me. You're mad at your father. Hmm. Interesting. I can't I be mad at both? <laughs> I suppose so. I think I'm talented All enough right. to be angry at both. You know what? Look, get get out of here. Okay. I, I can see that. That Stanford improv hard at work. <laughs> All right. Well, I wish I could say it was nice talking to you, but it was meh. It was meh. It was um, meh for me too, Raz. It was meh for me too. You're not the only one that can be meh about this. I didn't say you couldn't. I just said when you are, people care less. Okay, 
Daniel, I'll see you later. And Danny, I was half kidding about punching you. I'm coming fist swinging. Yeah, bring it on, Rez. I'll be there anytime. Name the place. Yeah, everyone's going to love two old Jews fist fighting in the street. <laughs> 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 All right, bye, Raz. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, yeah, sometimes. Well, I'm sorry, dude. I didn't. I don't. I know that's not what this podcast is about, but hey, I, I felt like something had. You to be know, said. a lot of people just kind of go with it, but you had to speak your mind. You would think that that would be something that later, like I'll talk to Raz later, where he's like, you know, I kind of respect that, but he won't. He won't. No, I don't think he will. I think he. I think he's kind of dead inside. He's rotten. He's mm-hmm. rotten to the core. That guy. And I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna just let him in. In, in this, in, especially mm-hmm. in this environment, that kind of behavior yeah. does not fly. I'm sure Raz has some very racist, homophobic things in his past. And probably his future. (laughs) And his future. (laughs) He's he's a problematic person. (laughs) Very much so. He is. You're clearly doing what you're meant to be doing, writing, acting, directing. But if you weren't doing those things, is there an area of interest or another career that you would gravitate towards or would like to explore? My whole life, I thought I was going to go into politics. That was the thing that I was um, incredibly passionate about growing up. I, I majored in political science with an, with an emphasis on international relations at school. My plan was to go back to Missouri when I graduated and run for office. And then I, I, this is the sort of entertainment thing kind of happened over time when I was in college. I'd always thought I would either run for office and be a politician or go work it's something in in um in international relations like the state department i think like where frankly my my feelings about where we are politically today have and and the state of politics has so shifted i i sadly at this point don't think that i uh, that a life spent in politics would be a life worthwhile like at least on on the politician side i would though probably really dig work to work in the state department, working on international issues and foreign policy, that stuff really kind of gets me super excited. You'd like to be in Missouri walking alongside a colleague like Josh Hawley. (laughs) We were at school at the same time. Yeah, We were at Stanford at the same time together and have mutual friends. We do. He still has friends? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, not, not (laughs) the ones that he had then. Yeah. I'm not proud. I'm not proud to say that I'm from uh, the same state and the same school as Mr. Hawley. Uh, I, um, it's a real, it's a real dark stain. Yeah, I hear you that the the political landscape, it's it's tough. It'd be a tough one to get into because I feel like there'd just be, and if the listener can tell, Danny would be someone fighting a lot of good fights and would really be, you know, he's got a good heart and he would be a great politician and someone who would actually try to enact change that would help humans in the world. You want to be my campaign manager? <laughs> sure. That was fantastic. And I also fully recognize that like, that's like that, like the decision by good people not to enter politics because the system is broken is a self-perpetuating cycle. Like you need people that are willing, good people that are willing to say, I know the system is broken and I'm going to enter it anyway to try to make it a little better. But I, I'm just like, man, like it's, and it's not just the division. It's the, it's the amount of time you'd have to spend raising money because of the way the campaign finance laws work. Um, It's the kowtowing to special interests and lobbyists. Like it's, it's so much of that kind of moral compromise that I'm unwilling to make. And I understand that that's part of the problem. Right. But I don't, I I don't know how to get around. I feel like it's 
it's the disheartening thing when you realize that the job you would like to do as a politician, you can't do because the work is actually all those other things. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of yeah. kind, good people who do enter politics and it's just a, it's a real hard slog to get to that good stuff because you are constantly, I'm going to be like, well, I still have to raise money because I have to stay in this race to be a good cog in the machine to then get to do stuff. So yeah. Yeah, you have to you have to you have to take seriously the possibility that your own moral lines are going to be slowly whittled away over time and pressure and that you will wake up, which I think happens to a lot of people in politics who went in with the best of intentions and then, you know, three terms in the Senate later find themselves, you know, having fallen so far from the moral heights that they began with and it happened in these little incremental, imperceptible ways. I, I, I think that that is a really corrosive thing that can happen to anybody. I mean, yeah, we need good people who want to enter. <laughs> it's sure tough. Do. It's okay. yep. I also am, despite everything going on, I'm an optimist. I believe that just we got the majority as far as kind people and nice people. Right. And people who actually want to do good. I think there are more people on this planet in that camp it's just a matter of getting those people like not apathetic. Yeah. Giving up. And dismayed. It's like, like, okay, and, yeah, exactly. That's just it. You just have to keep the energy going where they're like, okay, we have to keep adding more and more good people and we will see some progress. Agreed. But- it's a, it's a tough world. Boy, what, what, a, what, a, what a way for, uh, of course, two Jews uh, in gray sweaters uh, doing a podcast uh, about something completely unrelated. We'll end up with one of them sighing and saying, it's yes. a tough world. It's a tough world. Of course, that was the inevitable conclusion of this conversation. It, it was headed here since the moment we said hi. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Well, again... You got my support if you're ever running for anything, even local or hey, state thanks, or anything, man. because Appreciate that. I do feel like, I mean, in a way, like your career and how you think and dissect things, truly we've talked about in a way, a straight man who keeps things going, but blows up when things are real tough and you want to cry and you want to laugh with them. It's can be taken on a politician's journey of like, I'm trying so hard to get this to work and it falls apart. And also as somebody who has a care for narrative and where things fall and realizing to get to this ending, these things need to happen. Right. You got a very have to happen to set it up. Yeah. By step. Yeah. That's set. interesting. So I can see why naturally, Oh, politics is steps. It's taking these steps to get to a larger goal. Yeah. That's really interesting. With passion. Yeah. I had never really thought about it that way. That's really fascinating. Now I ask everyone as you know, Inevitably, when you're a guest on a late night talk show, do you have a story Mm. you'd like to tell? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this and I was thinking that uh, I would tell the story of the first time that I um, broke up with a girl. Um, I think it is a testament to the fact, I I don't know how I experienced this and am currently able to hold um, healthy long-term relationships, but my first relationship was um, was actually three years. It was, but it was from third to sixth grade. When true love blossomed. Love blossomed. Yeah, and I and I call it a relationship, but like the physical aspect of a relationship consisted of like rubbing elbows together while playing Nintendo after school, right? But that started to change 
um, in sixth grade, and I'm going to keep names out of the story, but my um, friends started having what they called Frenching parties, where uh, in their basement, uh, like we, a group of us would get together and the goal would be for couples to get up and to French kiss. And it is as awkward as it sounds. Uh, there was also, I should say, a competitive aspect to this. Like there, it was like whoever could do it the longest would win. And so this girl that I had, was quote unquote with, uh, we'd never French kissed before. And we, and we were like, all right, let's give this a shot. And we started to French kiss. And um, the problem was that her breath was so excruciatingly bad. And by the way, I am not trying to shame her whatsoever. Like we are 11 to 12 year olds. You should not be expected to get your breath in any kind of order, but it was pretty bad. And I was also though a, comp- a, a pretty competitive kid. So I wanted to win this competition. So I stuck with it to the point where there were, I was kissing her while there were tears running down my face. And so at the end of this, at the end of this, obviously I can't talk to her about this. I can't, uh, I, I can't work this out. I have to end this relationship. I'd never ended a relationship before. So, and also terrible choice on my part, very mean. I had never ended a relationship before. So I called, and this is the only name I'll include in this story. I called my best friend, Darren, who is still my best friend. And I said, you got you to gotta end this thing, man. I don't know how to do this. And so we called on three-way and I was silent. And he called her and was like, hey, listen, this has been a really fun ride, uh, but Danny wants to go in another direction. And she seemed, she seemed okay. Um, and then 10 minutes later, I got a call from her mom who yelled at me for the way that I broke up with her daughter. By the way, she was 100% right. And then the, 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 the weird postscript to this is that for some reason, she then called my elementary school counselor and set up what amounted to a marriage counseling session. I remember I was brought out of class in sixth grade and had to go and sit with her, the counselor and this girl and talk about this whole thing. And I have blocked it out of my mind but that's how it all oh shook out the, the phone breaking up reminds me i was uh seventh grade dated this girl for like a week um and she was like and now nah, week's good but she told her older sister who is friends with my sister and then my sister like basically was like i'm not going to do this but you should know the girl you're dating is trying to break up with you through me so you you should give her a call so I called her and confronted her. I was like, hey, look, if you want to break up, that's fine. But don't, don't have my own sister. And she was like, she was like, oh my God, no, I told my sister to tell you. I was like, that's also bad. <laughs> I told my sister. It was the wrong sister that told you. Yeah. Sadly, we're going to have to break up from this podcast. Well, at least you did it yourself. Yeah, exactly. I did it honorably. It has nothing to do with how you put your arm around me or your breath. Oh, good, it, good. A good partnership. I feel very, very lucky to have you as a guest. I hope, uh, hope you feel lucky to have me as a host, but you don't. I do. Okay. I, I really do. Good. Uh, but before we do jump off, do you have any, any projects you're currently working on or anything the listeners should keep their eyes out for? Currently in season three of American Crime Story impeachment about the um, Clinton scandal of the 90s. So you can look out for me on that. That's fantastic. And also a fun fact, you actually worked in the Clinton White House. 
I was I was an intern. That is yeah, I was an intern so in, the, in the end of the Clinton one. Yeah, it's crazy town. Are you it's really weird? Can you confidently say you might be the only person cast in that show who is actually boots on the ground there? In the cast? In, yes. In the yes. cast. Of course, M- Monica Lewinsky is an executive producer, so I think she had some personal experience. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um <laughs> but we want to get your But I think in the cast I can yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, people should really come to me for for what that was like. Uh, yes, I think I think I'm I'm I am um I think I am the only cast member to have had that personal firsthand experience, which is fun. So amazing. Well, thanks again, Danny, for hopping on. Of course, buddy. Yeah, and thanks everyone for listening. I'm your host, Daniel Acker, and this has been almost almost famous. <laughs>